Welcome to A State of Mind. This is Julian Ocean. For today's episode, I have the great privilege of speaking with Eric Solomon. And it was really a wonderful um, and kind of amazing synchronicity to get to meet him. We actually have a number of meditation teachers in common. Eric is the co-author of a new book called Radically Happy, which he wrote along with the Buddhist teacher, Pak Chok Rinpoche. And I've been really impressed with this book. I've been listening to it on audio, and it has a lot of wonderful practical advice as well as practices that you can begin to do and incorporate in your life to increase your own happiness and well-being and compassion. Eric is a former Silicon Valley executive, and he had a long successful career in Silicon Valley. So we get to talk about some of that and that those experiences in that career, you know, is informing part of what he is doing now as a meditation teacher. Um, he also studied artificial intelligence at MIT, and he has an interest in the interaction between computers and their human users. And like I mentioned before, he has studied with many great meditation masters, and we have many of these teachers in common, including the aforementioned Pakchok Rinpoche, Sokni Rinpoche, and Choki Nima Rinpoche, who was my first Dzogchen and Vajrayana teacher, and someone who really did alter the course of my life. And Choki Nima Rinpoche is the oldest son of Toko Ergen Rinpoche, who is a very renowned and well-respected lama from Old Tibet, whom Eric got to study with. He, Toko Ergen Rinpoche, passed away in 1996, I believe. So as we get to hear in this podcast, Eric is someone who has been practicing meditation for a long time, I think about 40 years now. My conversation with Eric was pretty far-ranging. We touched on a lot of interesting topics, and we kept coming back to the topics of happiness. I thought I would just share a few thoughts around the topic of happiness. It is one which risks being a cliché, but it's also something of vital importance to each one of us, I think, if we're really honest with ourselves. And there's a paradox with meditation and happiness, and that is that if we learn to stay with what's difficult, to stay with discomfort, through the practice of meditation, paradoxically, that can lead to a much greater sense of well-being than if we try to escape that discomfort or run after some other pleasure. And in fact, one of the most amazing studies cited in this book, and which I get to talk about with Eric here, is a study in which researchers looked at people who were stuck in traffic on their morning commute, and they actually found that these people were on average happier when they were present with their circumstances than when they were daydreaming, even when being present meant being stuck in a traffic jam and daydreaming meant fantasizing about something like a beach in Thailand. It's really uh, provocative and worth thinking about. And as Eric says, daydreaming can be an important part of uh, one's creative process. So it's not something that's always bad, but the problem seems to be that we do it habitually in order to escape what is actually happening in the present. And of course, the subject of happiness has been discussed by philosophers in the European tradition since time immemorial. Aristotle, the giant of the Western philosophical tradition, he famously articulated happiness as the ultimate purpose of human beings. But importantly, he distinguished between different types of happiness. So hedonic happiness is the pursuit of transitory pleasure, such as one can find through eating an ice cream cone. And if we pay attention to our own experience, we can pretty quickly see that the first bite of an ice cream cone might be amazing, 
and then the second and third bite a little bit less amazing. And then by the 20th bite of ice cream, we become so used to it. Our mind is probably wandering or daydreaming at that point, even while we're still eating. And then by the 100th or 200th bite, you're probably going to be feeling sick. So we can clearly see that hedonic pursuits of pleasure are limited and kind of degrade over time and are ultimately unsatisfactory. And Aristotle contrasted this with eudomania, or genuine well-being. And this idea of eudomania is an idea of a much deeper, more meaningful type of happiness, which takes much more skill and wisdom to cultivate and to experience. And so when Aristotle talked about happiness as the ultimate purpose of human life, he was talking about this eudomania. And I believe the same is true, basically, of the Buddhist traditions. One key finding from modern psychological studies that is corroborated in ancient traditions of Buddhism is that when we are less concerned with ourselves, we tend to be happier, potentially much happier. And so in this book, Radical Happiness, we have a lot of practices of putting our attention on other people, cultivating compassion and care for others. And paradoxically, again, that can increase our own sense of well-being, even though that's really more of a side effect. It's not the point of that. And if you're interested in reading more about the subject of happiness from the point of view of modern psychology, I really recommend two books um, written for general audiences. One is Authentic Happiness by Martin Seligman, and the other is The Happiness Hypothesis by Jonathan Haidt. And I think it would be fair to observe that the ancient Buddhist traditions do have a lot to say about happiness, and the practice traditions, which me and Eric have been connected and practicing within, really emphasize this kind of radical happiness, to quote the title of this book, which is completely not dependent on external circumstances. And if you get this book and meditate and do some of these practices, that will begin to make more sense to you. And while on the surface of it, Buddhism, you know, as it's typically understood, does tend to emphasize looking for happiness within. If we understand that the Buddha taught about non-self and he taught about the interconnectedness of all things, then we understand there isn't really an inner versus a quote-unquote outer in that our happiness and well-being does not come from separating yourself off from other people and conscious creatures. Instead, I believe it comes from really opening up our heart. And then my final thought on happiness is that, you know, if we're going to look at the world today and consider that the driving force of so much of our world is one of pursuing quote-unquote progress, and that a very real motivation of this progress should then be to create the greatest happiness and well-being for the most amount of people and, I would say, conscious creatures. And I think most people would really agree with this if they were pressed on it, if they were asked about it. And this being the case, it is really worth our time thinking about what truly creates happiness and well-being. Because our diluted pursuit of progress is today threatening the survival of many species on this planet, including potentially our own. How many more decades of such quote-unquote progress can we survive? So the path towards genuine happiness, presented in the book Radical Happiness, is one of tapping into the potentially limitless powers of our own consciousness, rather than just pursuing more material wealth and hedonic pleasure. This genuine happiness doesn't have to come at the expense and well-being of others. And again, this isn't to diminish material progress, but it should be put in a larger context. What is the point of it? If we are constantly creating more material wealth and yet our subjective experience is one of less happiness, that's something we really need to look at and think about as a society. So I just wanted to share a few thoughts about this subject as someone who has studied both Buddhism and psychology somewhat extensively. 
And I think it's a really important topic and one worth deeply considering. And so, without further ado, I bring you Eric Salomon. Today with Eric Solomon. Eric, Hi. thanks for coming on. <laughs> and you are, along with a teacher named Pak Chok Rinpoche, the author of a new book called Radically Happy. That's right. And you just are getting back from the Shambhala Mountain Center, is that right? That's right. We had a weekend workshop up there. How was that? Oh, it's a blast. Yeah. It's uh, me and my friend Ashira, who is assisting me, and then a, a bunch of uh, participants in our program, and we went through. Um, the book and a few things that aren't in the book, of course. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. And how long have you been practicing meditation? Ooh, I don't know. <laughs> Give away my age. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm teasing. I think 43 years. 43 years? Wow. Yeah. Okay. No, wait a minute. Yes, 43 years. Well, that's amazing. Yeah. How did you first get interested in meditation? Well, I mean, uh, there's two separate things. Meditation, I, I learned when I was a teenager. Uh, I had a therapist who helped me uh, learn to meditate because he thought it would help me manage stress and life mm. in general. And, um, but when I was, <clears throat> I was a precocious young kid and hanging out at a MIT's AI lab in the late 60s and early 70s. And um, I was quite young. And Marvin Minsky, who is uh, one of the founders of artificial intelligence research, um, he told me once, I think I was about 10 years old, he said to hmm. me, you know, the self doesn't really exist. And this, huh. this was the basis of his whole theory of how you could create intelligence in a, in, in a, in a machine. Oh really? Yeah, interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that, there's now it's um, you know that's a lot of debate about it. In uh, I mean, I've never heard of um, artificial intelligence being connected with the idea of no self. Right. Well, that was something that Minsky uh, actually uh, was a central part of his theory. Uh, you know, it's something if you want, you can look it up. Google Society of Minds. But the simple version is is that intelligence evolves or appears out of the um, interdependence of certain more basic brain functions. Mm. And each one of those is not particularly intelligent, but the interdependence of them creates mm. the appearance of intelligence. Uh. So it's a little different than the way Buddhists think about it, but it's similar in the sense that, that um, he said there was no self. So, you know, being yeah. 10 years old, that really surprised me. And um, there were two things I got out of that. One was a lifelong uh, passion for computing, and mm. the other was a lifelong passion for understanding, well, what is consciousness? What is awareness? What is yeah. self? And that uh, naturally led me eventually in my late teens to uh, Buddhism. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, I feel like both those interests have served you well, because <laughs> computing obviously has exploded, and yeah. maybe we'll talk more about that, but you worked in Silicon Valley. For a long and, time. Yeah. yeah. Now I'm mostly out of it, but I, I, okay, yeah. Well, it's interesting because I've been um, studying psychology for a while, and there's the, a lot of the 
you know, cutting-edge ideas in psychology explaining our mind are that they're different modules of the mind that come online at different times. Mm-hmm. And you could think about them as different cells or different parts of ourselves, mm-hmm. like parts work, but we could just drop the whole word self. There's really, like like you just said, these little systems that come online. Like if my partner does something and I feel jealous, all of a sudden I'm a different person That's than five minutes ago when I was relaxed and clear. And That's right appreciating her and yeah it's interesting how <laughs> that happens yeah and we even talk about ourselves like like i didn't real i didn't know myself that day i mean it's such a bizarre I didn't, statement I, I wasn't right? myself i wasn't myself that's right yeah and um so we have some sense of that yeah. experientially right sometimes we're just surprised by how we behaved or right. if we injure ourselves in some way we can temporarily uh we don't feel ourselves. We don't act like ourselves. We even recognize it that we're not ourselves, <laughs> whatever that means. Yeah. 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 And then afterwards we apologize and like, oh, I wasn't myself. Right. <laughs> don't blame me. <laughs> uh, a convenient excuse. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's interesting that I guess, I mean, so you were 10. I mean, this maybe it was like the 70s or something. Or it would be, well, I was or? 10 in 1970. Yeah, okay. So. Yeah, so some of these ideas have been around for a while, but I think more and more they're influencing ideas from Buddhism, Eastern philosophy, more and more they're influencing our understanding, and there's this beautiful dialogue with psychology and science. And Yeah, I think it's very exciting how uh, all these different angles or ways of looking at mind and awareness are starting to converge. You didn't have, it wasn't appropriate to study consciousness. Hmm. It was considered, right. you know, like uh, 20, 25 years ago. And now you see people in physics, in neuroscience, mm-hmm. psychology, it's, uh, even in, in different disciplines within biology that, that are, are studying this, looking at this, theorizing about it. And so it's um, really, really changed a lot. It's still yeah. slightly fringy, though. Yeah, well, the yeah. mainstream science for so long was materialistic, and it yeah, still is. That's Everything right. is like so. Consciousness was is thought of as just this epiphenomena of material processes. That's right. And at the very least, it seems to me undeniable that our consciousness, whatever it is, <coughs> does influence our material body. Like it goes, it's a two way street. Like if I think about something that makes me angry, there's physiological changes, and then you could observe that through physical measurements. You can't deny this interplay. I think that the more we look at it, the more we'll see that the that this kind of idea that there's a mind-body dichotomy is completely false. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, that it's much more interconnected than that. Um, I mean, in Buddhism, we would say the mind isn't the aggregates, the physical aggregates. You'll never find you know mind in the different you know right. at the same time. You can't say it's other than that. So you start to see it as more of a process, the result of a process, and you call that mind. But as you pointed out, then you have different minds at different times, <laughs> and that's part of it being a process. Right. And why, you know, it leads you to, to, to why you would start to say, well, there's no self. There's no findable self. In right. a mere sense, of course there's a self. You can't, I mean, you ask me a question, I'm going to answer it. Yeah. Even, even Buddha would answer it, right? <laughs> like, can you hand me a cup of water? You can hand me the water. You're that's not, right. You don't say, oh, I don't exist. That's right. That, that's just silly. But, but it's a mere sense of, of self, but not a definable, isolatable, findable. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the... We have to just ask, like, what is the self? And if it's... it's there's the three... Mark, we've talked about this on the podcast before, but it's it's not something that's singular, permanent... That's correct. ...and uh, independent from everything else that's existing. That's if, right. if we look for a self like that, then we can't find it. 
That's right. Yeah, we assume when we say myself, that's what we are kind of assuming is happening. It's implicit in the way we normally think about it, but that's you just gave sort of the classic way Buddhists would investigate and say, is it permanent, singular, independent? Right. It's so, I mean, the interesting part for me is um, thinking about things like this, and it really does make an impact and change my life. But then there's so many moments where, you know, I could have just, like, just after this conversation, I could go upstairs and all of a sudden, all those assumptions are right back there. That's right. You know, it's like... <laughs> it's a habit. <laughs> so I think there's different levels of mind, and we can consciously think one thing, and we can have some intellectual understanding, but it, then on an emotional level, you react as if that is the case, and... It's just amazing. Well, that's a, the thing that's I think really incredible about Buddhist practice is that you can actually can experience it. So mm. not viscerally, not think about it, but viscerally know what that means. Yeah. So um, as long as you think about it, you're always going to be have these two ideas in constant battle: no self and self, because there's no way because it because concepts are what keep us from being able to experience it directly. So mm-hmm. you have to kind of go a little bit beyond a normal uh, a normal way of thinking. Right. Yeah. I guess the, I mean, ideally the conceptual understanding is, is obviously helpful and leads to a, exactly. an understanding. Of, exactly. But yeah, it can be, we're so, um, we tend to live in our heads so much. That's an, another podcast episode I had with uh, Amber Ryan and we were mm-hmm. just, talking about the importance of dropping into the body. Mm, mm, mm. And um, I think that that's, in my experience, more and more Buddhist teachers are bringing that into their, into what they're offering as yeah, well. That's true. I think that maybe in the, in the East, traditionally in India, maybe in Tibet, like there is a more integration with the body and mind that we in here in America and Europe and the West don't somehow seem to be more separated. I don't know if that's true or not. I think it's more something about the difference between modern life and sort of more traditional culture of life, mm. you know, being more agrarian and so forth. That uh, There's something about urban life and also being highly educated that we're, we're put more into our head. Right. And the speediness of the modern world it actually kind of almost moves the energy up into our head. Um, so this is actually something we just did in Shambhala Mountain Center is I kept uh, doing this practice where I tell people to try to just, we do some kind of physical activity and then just drop everything and feel how we feel mm. instead of think about it, mm. right? So yeah. if we're feeling sad, just feel the sensation. Mm. And then actually what's interesting is, is then it starts to just become energy. And when it's energy, you don't have the story mm. and then you can let it go. It's, or it's easier to easier, let it like, go. And you, you actually experience it, like on a felt level. I mean, for me, this is, it's been actually been quite a process of feeling my feelings and then kind of realizing subtly I'm thinking about my feelings instead of just feeling <laughs> that's it right. directly and how subtle that can become. That's right. That's right. Uh, but I mean, I think that that's a universal problem, whether you're a modern person or, mm. or from an ancient traditional culture, of which there's very few people like that left in the world. Right. I think this, you know, people try to talk about East West, but I think it's better to say ancient versus modern. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I could imagine if you were, you know, if you had the noma- lifestyle of a nomadic person, how, and mm. no. Cell phone, music, TV, I mean, just 50 years ago, 100 years ago. I mean, it was just such a different way of life. And also, there wasn't, um, it wasn't necessary to have as many critical thinking skills Mm. to herd sheep. I mean, you know, as opposed to 
say, programming computer or, um, you know, being a psychotherapist and so <laughs> forth and so on. I mean, these are all, they, takes, these are actually wonderful things about our society, but they do um, put us much more into our head. Yeah. No, that's a great point. I think yeah. our modern society really requires us to have these critical thinking skills and to use our thought process. And mm-hmm. I mean, I just had an experience a few weeks ago of, um, I was trying to delete a bunch of old emails that had been saved on my computer mm. and I accidentally deleted like all my emails. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. and all of a sudden what I thought was going to be a short, simple thing turned into this like kind of email disaster. And then I went to work and I was talking about this and they were like, cause I work at a mental health uh, institution part time and mm. they're like, can you imagine someone, you know, with who is here, someone who has bipolar or severe schizophrenia, like how they can manage an email thing like that. Like mm. it's just, it, our society requ- requires being able to operate and meet challenges like that. and That's true. And just That's true. different, yeah, yeah, learning and growing. But luckily, uh, mindfulness can be a, a big help for things like that. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's a big help for a lot of things. Um, I mean, there's this famous experiment where uh, they put a app on people's iPhones and ask them uh, several times during the day, how uh, well are you? How happy are you? Mm. And what are you doing? And they saw, found after collecting like 500,000 pieces of data with some Killingsworth and Gilbert, if you want to Google. And um, they found that people who were present moment focused were may, way more likely to be happy, to be okay. well, feel well within themselves. And that 53% of the time we were involved in mind wandering, mostly daydreaming, you know, lost thinking and thought yeah. about thoughts instead of present moment focused. And so things like mindfulness, um, you know, uh, help us get used to being more present moment focused. Mm. And radically happy, what we talk, we talk about this as basic happiness, mm. that this ability to come into the present moment is sort of the foundation of just being able to simply enjoy stuff. You know, everybody's had this uh, experience of like, it's a perfect day. Mm. And maybe you're with your, you know, your partner or one of your dear friends and you lean back with a sigh and you go, oh, too bad every day can't be like this. And that very moment of, of a blissfully perfect day, mm. you're already a little bit in the too bad. Because right. we just... Because you know it's going to end. Yeah, we're already in the fear of it changing, <laughs> even though change is the only reliable thing in our experience. Mm. And, and that, that just shows how difficult it is. You know, I've been giving um, talks on Radically Happy now for a few years, and I have yet to find in any audience one person who said they never had a day where they didn't say, too bad. Mm. And it just shows how difficult it is just for us to enjoy. Mm. So, so this coming into the present moment, getting used to being in the present moment, is a big part of just being able to simply enjoy the good things in life, and also when things go south, to not just loop in with anxiety and fear. Mm. You know, the, the, yeah, I mean, it's. I think I think that's really well said. I'm just I'm just reflecting on. There's something in our mind that always is um, kind of critically be critical, thinking things could be better or right. that they're about to end, like you just said. Right, right, it right. just it never stops. Yeah, I, I remember this one vacation I had in Cabo San Lucas when I was living in Silicon Valley because it's like two hours away and in the uh, January and February rains, it's it's nice to have a break, you know, six weeks of California yeah. downpour. 
And we're having such a great time. I spent half a day rearranging my schedule so I could stay one more day. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, what, what's going on there, right? Instead of just being really uh. with it. I, I, you know, of course, I started thinking it would be an hour, right? But then yeah. it's never an hour. And it just right. led one thing to another and all, all these phone calls that had to be made <laughs> and a little bit anxiousness because, you know, now I'm halfway in. Can I get the other way out? <laughs> so and, half a day for one day. Yeah. 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 That's interesting. Yeah, it really is. Well, there was, um, so I've been listening to the book Radically Happy on the audio format and it's, it's great. And one of the things that you talked about, similar to what you just shared, was studies showing that when people are present in the moment mm-hmm. and, in touch with what's actually happening in this physical material, you know, this world in the here and now, they tend to be happier than daydreaming, even if it's a pleasant daydream, and even if what's happening in the moment is something unpleasant. That's right. They found that, that people that was amazing. Who, yeah, they found <laughs> that people who were stuck in terrible Bay Area traffic were more likely to be slightly. It's not way more, okay. but slightly more likely to be um, well if they were just present fully present in that terrible rush hour traffic mm. than if they were like say daydreaming about the beach in Thailand or something <laughs> like that which is really remarkable yeah, that's that's one of the most amazing things in that book that I heard yeah. it really stuck out yeah. to me and yeah. it really uh, I, I've experienced that in the context sometimes of meditation retreats or mm. sometimes like doing the dishes you know, mm-hmm. it's like oh, I don't want to do the dishes uh, and then you if I, when I can drop in and be mindful it's like all that can kind of fall away and it's that's like right. it's an, it can be a pleasant experience and or at least not so bad at least right? not so yeah. bad <laughs> It's like the fear of doing dishes is way worse than just, there's a dish, there's some water. Feel the feeling of the washcloth in your hand, the water hitting your hand, the the tension of the cloth on the plate. All these things just sometimes being really simple. And it changes just by coming into the present moment. It completely changes Mm -hmm. the way we experience Mm -hmm. the activity. Yeah. It's like the suffering is is coming from the thinking mind basically or the resistance mm. the critical mm. and the big one for me like i mean obviously like thinking about something else that you could be doing that should right. be supposed to be better that's right but the, the other thing you talk about in your book that really i really appreciated is um i felt like it was kind of highlighting our self-critical thinking where we're comparing ourselves to others oh, yeah. or the part that uh feels true to me often is thinking that i should be better than i am that's right and that's that right. was really well said in the book and it's the biggest stealer of contentment in our lives is mm. the habit of comparing ourselves against our idealized version of our life, what right. we want to have, or, or, um, or somebody else's life. And you see, w- w- just to back up a little bit, my teacher, Tukorjan Rinpoche, a really amazing meditation master, one of the most, if not the most incredible person I ever met, mm. he one time said something to me that totally changed my life. The very basis of our dissatisfaction is the ongoing, never-ending evaluation of the quality of our experience. You know, it's that little CNN Mm -hmm. ticker at the bottom of our screen that's always saying, oh, that's good. No, that's bad. (laughs) Run away. Right? And then you start to think about it. Yeah, the narration. That's right. The concept, but it's always this funny habit of evaluating. Of course, there are times it's important to evaluate, but this goes on about the most trivial stuff. I mean, yeah. if you just imagine saying some of it out loud, <laughs> anybody who'd be sitting there, you'd think you were stark raving mad, not just because you're talking to yourself, but also what the content <laughs> is. Yeah. And, and yet, this is, this is just always going on. And always, the first thought is never the problem. I like this, it's fine. Hmm. It's then everything that happens after, as we start to think about it, it takes us out of the present moment. Hmm. And this 
becomes very big and thick when we get fall into the comparison trap. Yeah. And so, if we can break this, because you know, com- comparison or like say evaluating your life isn't necessarily bad if you just leave it as it's an opportunity for growth. Right. That could be right. A, that could be a healthy way to do it for sure. That's right. But yeah. the the truth is, for most of us, most of the time, this kind of comparison is at least slightly self-denigrating and often more so. Mm. And so that's, you know, then you're so far from the present moment, so far from basic happiness, mm. a, a, a subtle sense of well-being that you can access. Yeah, and it can so rapidly spiral down into worse and worse. That's I, right. I think this is a huge issue. And I wonder, just reflecting on when I was growing up, we had uh, the teachers in my like elementary school, I think even in middle school, like talking about self-esteem. Mm. And I think in retrospect, this is part of the problem. Like yeah. we're told when we're kids, I was told when I was a kid, you can be whatever you want to be. You mm. can live your dreams. You mm. can live your dream life. If you work hard enough, you can have whatever you want. That's right. And the, I guess, the, I mean, obviously the positive side, if you motivate yourself to put effort in a good way, but the negative side is like, I mean, it's just not, things aren't going to work out the way you think they're going to work out. And that's not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. That's just a life. <laughs> yes. And in fact, another thing from the book is that we're, uh, the science is telling us we're very, very bad at predicting what's going to make us happy. Yet the way we <laughs> act is as if, yes, I know. And we go for mm-hmm. it, you know, I really want that job. I really want, and then you get the job and your boss is a terror. And you never once thought about that. This happens to people all the time, right? And uh. you, you know, so you, you imagine how something's going to be, and then you get it, and it often either isn't, or you know, three days later, you're on to the next thing you want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that makes me think. I just was talking to a friend the other day, and they had given up $20,000 a year in salary yeah. to, for a, a less well-paying position in the same company, but partly because they hated their, the manager, the way that was happening, mm. but the stress so they were happier with the, with less money and it was cool to actually meet someone who actually that was you know t- saying that it was actually the biggest single predictor of a person's sense of satisfaction with their job is their relationship with their boss oh, that's amazing. that's interesting yeah and i was in silicon valley during the first dot com explosion hmm. and uh, everybody was having to like the average turnover in a you know, a company was about 35% a year. So a third, more than a third oh. of your staff <laughs> is off to greener pastures or whatever every year. And how do you manage through that? And what, what we found in, in the company I was working for was we'd grown quite, quite rapidly from a few hundred employees to a few thousand. And so we had a pretty good data set. And the groups that had like really way below, like six to 8% turnover in a year, which is very manageable, they, we, you know, consistently, every single one of them, what the people said was, my boss cares about me. My boss doesn't just care about deadlines. Mm. They actually care about how I am in it, whether I'm growing, whether my career goals are being mm. met. Actually, people are quite reasonable. They understand they can't just, not everything they want can be found in their job, but they, they do want to feel like they're also part of the equation. Right. And, and then the funny thing is, when that happens, not only are the, um, do you have lower attrition, but the people will like do whatever it takes to be, you know, to help for mm. the success of the company because they like what they're doing. Mm. And there's the personal connection, that's and right. sense of meaning. That's that, right. Because yeah. in that dot bomb, ex- com, sorry, dot com explosion, and basically everybody could go out and get a job that paid at least slightly more. Interesting. And so people are staying not because of money, but because of their relationship with their boss. Mm, yeah. So 
Hopefully a few of you bosses out there will <laughs> take this seriously. Be kind. Be kind. And then part of it, I think, from your book was also like be interested in helping them to improve and grow. Mm -hmm. Like point, actually pointing out criticism. People liked bosses that pointed out. That's right. My, that was another line. My boss only tells me the good news. I know I need to grow. People mm. liked it when their boss, I mean, if it's constructive criticism, right. of course, yeah. but they, they felt supported when their boss was actually taking the time and, and they experienced it as care and mm. kindness, even though it was criticism, mm. right? When their boss would actually take the time to say, you know, I think there's a couple things here you, you, you need to work on. And hopefully even said, and I'm here to help you do that, right? Right. So, yeah. So you... Um I'm just, I just love hearing about your background with Silicon Valley and meditation. It seems right. like if from age 10, I mean, that's a very early age, so they really went hand in hand mm. almost your whole life, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I had my mother uh, in the early, late 60s, early 70s. She had all the books around the house by, you know, the... Zen guys and Gestalt therapy, which came from Zen, and mm. um, and uh, you know, like Baba Ramdas, be here now, all this kind of the stuff. Classic, and I, yeah, yeah. And I just, uh, you know, I, I was a precocious, curious guy, <laughs> and I started reading it, and um, and then by the time I was uh, in my teens, I got very, very interested in Buddhist philosophy. Mm. And then that led you to Tolkien Rinpoche. Yeah, gradually. I mean, first I went to university. I went to uh, I went to Columbia, and then UC Santa Cruz. And in UC Santa Cruz, you know, I was a little bit arrogant. I was meditating, um, and I I liked Buddhist philosophy, and I just thought, well, there it is. I understand it. Mm. Well, I thought I understood it, but right. you know, of course, understanding and experience are slightly different. But then I met in Santa Cruz um, some Tibetan teachers which um, really intrigued me. And then that led me to this deep wish to go and meet um, one of these masters who'd come to spiritual maturity before the Cultural Revolution, mm. you know, who spent uh, decades in retreat and so forth. I met Dujam Rinpoche, this famous oh, wow. old master, just before he passed away, but I really only met him. But that blew me out of the water. I couldn't believe that somebody mm. could be like that. So anyway, I had this friend in Nepal who was studying with uh, Tugor Jin Rinpoche, who's Pachok Rinpoche, my co-author's grandfather. Mm. Um, and she was writing me saying, you've got to come and meet my guru, whatever. And, and so, I, you know, this was exactly what I thought I should do. You know, I mean, I'd learned about artificial intelligence from Marvin Minsky, Seymour Papert, and also my aunt, Cynthia Solomon. They were all doing research together. And so, you know, I had this, I really wanted to go to the source. Hmm. And, um, and that uh, uh, was one of the best and most incredible things I ever did. <laughs> This, this is in Nepal, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What I mean for people listening who I mean, there's a lot of skepticism about this idea of a guru and mm. the teacher, and mm. for, I think for a lot of good reasons. Yeah. Me too. How would you talk about like because you say it kind of blew you away? Like what what is it about that? Like just the pr sheer presence of the. This yeah, person? but also the skill with which he guided me hmm. to be able to taste the very. Um essence of our awareness mm. and and you know what was incredible about him is anybody who met him he could do it with oh wow it, it's i mean the, this is why for example uh the 16th karmapa sent all his 
disciples who were big famous uh, mm-hmm. became big famous tukus when they were young to tuku origin to get mm-hmm. the, to receive this teaching. Um, it's um, so it sounds fantastic, but it's actually something very ordinary. It's something we all, but it ta- requires a skilled uh, teacher, and um, and tuku origin is frankly one of the best, if not mm-hmm. the best. And um, at doing this. And so that's, you know, it's a combination of, yes, I mean, from the moment you came into the room with him, he had this unique ability to really see where other people were at Mm. and give them maybe not even what they were asking for, but what they needed. And uh, Patrick Rinpoche talks about it from the perspective in the book of being uh, his grandson and how he gave him toys and different things, but then later watching him with other people. And um, when, when Tugorjan passed away, I went to his cremation, and it was incredible, the variety of different kinds of Nepalis and Tibetans mm. who showed up. Mm. You know, not everybody thought he was the great guru, right. because that isn't how they met him, right? Mm. But you had Nepali politicians, you know, you know, Buddhist, at the time, Buddhist culture was something that, um, you know, established Hindus might look down upon. So these politicians are there not because it's going to increase the number of votes they're going to receive, but mm. because they, he touched them in some way. I remember staying uh, with him to receive teachings and in the evenings he would go and talk to the day laborers who were working, building... Oh, really? Parts of the monastery. These are people who have no education, very poor, mm. and he would give them teachings. Oh wow! And and, and they showed up. Oh uh, yeah, right. That's I mean, a beautiful had, story. Yeah, you had everything. So there's, there's something uh, that ability that he had, which everybody tasted when they met him, mm. was something quite remarkable. Yeah, no, that's really special. I I've heard a lot of stories about Tolka Ergen Rinpoche. I never got mm-hmm. to meet him personally, but I did get to go to Nepal and I visited his monastery and um, saw the room that he was in and just, I mean, one of the things that impressed me thinking about him and it may not sound like that big of a deal, but like he actually lived a very simple life and he That's wasn't, true. he wasn't driving a Lamborghini or trying to get a lot of money or women or, and so, <laughs> no. I mean, I think that says something as he was obviously content. I mean, he could have traveled the world and given a bunch of talks probably. And yeah. He I did mean, travel a little bit, but yeah. he had some health problems that kept okay. him from traveling. And, um, and also, uh, in those days, you know, uh, Buddhism wasn't as popular as it is now. So it's mm. actually kind of nice. You could go, and if you got there at the right time, it's very easy to get, in a very quiet way, just mm. teachings from him. You could just go see him. Yeah. 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 That's beautiful. Yeah. Um, I was going to say the... I, I, you know, when, one thing I want to say, because you do bring up an important point, and I, do, I, I think that... Um, it is difficult in this day and age, and especially with all the, you know, different things we see from from our leaders, whether it's spiritual, business, political, blah blah blah. There's a yeah. lot of of understandable mistrust. Yeah. But why it is that people feel devotion to and call a, a teacher a guru is because it's a natural thing, something we've lost in our culture. When someone teaches you something. That changes your life. It's understandable. You feel gratitude, maybe even love. Mm. 
And so, you know, we used to be that, you know, we, we'd be indentured servants for, uh, for a while to uh, someone who would teach us a trade. Mm. They weren't necessarily all that nice to us, <laughs> maybe even exploited us a bit. But then, you know, when you later in life would think of them, you're a carpenter, you know, tears would come to your eyes. And mm. even like Marvin Minsky, the, who I was talking about earlier, when he would talk about his mentors, mm. uh, he would get very soft, you know, the, the, the professors he had studied with. And, and now we all think, oh, well, he's paid to do that. It's all transactional, right? We mm-hmm. don't really have that same it, – it's harder to find that same in our modern culture because it, yeah. it's understandable, the cynicism, but it, we've lost something important because of it. Yeah, no, I think that's well said. I think, um, I think that – I like that you brought it out of the realm of just spirituality, like a carpenter or mathematics or science. Mm-hmm. I've, I've heard um, talks from some scientists where they have that sense of their teacher, like they studied under this great scientist that's and how right. much he helped them. And, that's right. And uh, that's, that's beautiful. And we're, we're so cynical now and so material. And so if we think about everything in terms of transactions and if we think about everything in terms of power, and then we lose that kind of appreciation and gratitude. And it's a shame. Yeah. I mean, I do, I do understand how we got here. And, and I think, you know, maybe something good's going to come out of it all because I said some things did need to change, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, but it's a phase we're in, maybe. <laughs> we are, we're in such an interesting place because yeah. our president is Donald Trump. <laughs> and, like, he, you know, he's the leader. And, like, how do yeah. you relate to that as a role model or the opposite of a role model or... But I was just thinking about our earlier thing about comparing ourselves to others. And mm. he seems like someone who, on the surface, has almost a pathological amount of self-confidence. And I don't know what his inner world is like, sure. but it's it's almost like the self-esteem movement gone totally awry produced Donald Trump. I think about that sometimes. Well, I think, you know, I think we have to look at it even more broadly because how how does this kind of thing happen? And somehow we've got to a place where people who disagree can't even talk to each other. They right. can't have any respect or understand. I remember in Silicon Valley, I had friends, a few friends, who I didn't agree with on politics at all, but we could share a meal. We could even talk. And mm. what made it possible is I could understand why they thought the way they did. They could understand why I... Th- Actually, a lot of times, we, we both wanted to solve the same problem for the same reason. We just have very different ideas about what the solution should look like. And, you know, somehow, we're just all ending up now demonizing each other. And I feel that, um, of course, it seems like the president isn't always completely honest, but I even look at, on Facebook, some of my friends who... I probably agree with their politics, and yet I feel they're cherry-picking facts. Right. And maybe it's yeah. not as egregious, but <laughs> it's just something that's going on right now. And so what can we do? I think the thing we have to do mm. is first, more and more and more, come into the present moment, heal ourselves, mm. and uncover our natural warm-heartedness, which gets to the next part of the book, which is interconnected mm. happiness, so that we... We begin to be able to see things from the other person's point of view, be able to listen mm. and be present and and care about people who we don't always agree with, even some who have some seemingly quite outrageous positions. Mm. You, it's really obvious. Science is even is even showing this is true. You can't win people over by facts. Mm. People almost always, <laughs> and everybody here is going to think I'm different, but people almost always. Um, 
make decisions based on what tribe they want to identify with, mm. what club they want to be in. There's a fantastic experiment where they uh, showed people um, possible bills that could come up before Congress. And people were all over the map, whether they liked it or not. It didn't matter what party you were in or where you lived in the country until you said it's a Democrat proposal or a Republican pro- proposal. Oh, interesting. And then everybody lockstep went by whatever party they feel most affiliated with. So I think we, we all have to admit that we are part of this problem. Yeah. And the way out is really getting free of all our cultural conditioning or not maybe all is too strong, but get, learning to be a little bit less a prisoner of our habits, the way we were raised, the traumas we suffered as kids, and and that it's possible. And the way it's possible is through coming into the present moment and and uncovering our natural capacity for warm-heartedness mm. and for care. Thanks. Yeah, that's so important. I think we need to get back in touch with that. And yeah. I think another piece of the puzzle is the willingness to be with discomfort. Yes, yes, the willingness yes, yes, to yes, even yes. suffer for a minute or two. Yeah, because part of what's going on online is like someone says something that makes me uncomfortable. I'm never gonna. I'm gonna block them. I'm gonna del- right. delete them. I'm gonna. <laughs> That's right. It's gotten too extreme. Yeah, yeah. Somehow we have to go back to being able to listen to one another. And I have a feeling if we can do that, for the most part, everything will become less extreme. Hmm. You know, I see it in France in a different way, um, but it's sort of the same thing. And, 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 you know, I have a neighbor who's a, a yellow vest. And I was really, um, I, in the beginning, I really understood. And then it got a little violent in that. For so the, me, that the was. protest movement? Yeah. The yellow vests are um, a group of, of people who, uh, without any kind of central organization, started spontaneously protesting. Um, Macron's government, the president of France, and um, but then as it wore on, it um, it became uh, a little more violent and unpredictable. And you know, my neighbor sometimes says to me, "What to me are quite shocking things about about uh, how he feels." You know, Macron should be taken out of office or the particular oh. way, <laughs> um, and but. You see, rather than focusing on that, I try to understand why mm. he feels that way. And actually, there's some legitimacy to why, even though his solution I, I fundamentally disagree mm-hmm. with. Interesting. That's a good example. Yeah. And, but it, then it makes it so we have something in common. We can begin to talk. We, can, right. we, we, we don't fall into this demonizing one another. He knows I don't agree with him. Mm. But because I... He also feels that I can see where he's coming from. You're listening. That's right. Yeah. That's no, right. That's a, this is a big reason why I started this podcast and got into podcasting oh, wow. because it's, it'll be an hour or sometimes up to two mm-hmm. hours conversation mm-hmm. and we're face to face and there's a real human connection mm-hmm. and it's not a 45 second soundbite and it's not a little 128 word tweet or whatever that is now 256 and it's like you have time to connect and listen that's and understand. Right. I have a cousin who lives in rural England, a little village mm-hmm. where my grand grandfather was born and he is actually one of the people who supports brexit like a hundred percent and kind of anti-immigrant and all this and so on the surface we might disagree about a number of things but i really listened to him and we had like a really interesting amazing conversation where i could understand his point of view and i could see because i went and visited him over the summer you could see how quickly 
this little village is being changed and how that's right how uh you know if you get a taxi it's it could be someone from pakistan or india and and people have been living in that village for over um twelve hundred years at least probably probably right. longer probably two thousand right. or something so just we have some sympathy for different people's opinions and why that they feel the way they do well the brexit thing is another good example and it's something personally i feel quite sad about I feel like people should be finding ways to come together and not split apart. But, yeah. you know, then I had somebody tell me, well, you know, um, we just don't feel that European Union is entirely democratic and that there's some bureaucrats in Brussels who make decisions that affect our lives, including things like um, immigration, and, and we don't feel we have any say and we want to take back control. Mm. And, you know, again, I think there's a different way to you know, take that one on, but, um, but it bega- became a way for, I had never th- thought of that before, right? Right, Because I was just reading the newspaper. Right. And then, you know, feeling that person's energy and, and uh, seeing, beginning to see it from their point of view, it gave us a way to talk about it and to, yeah. to ha- through mutual respect, although not completely agreeing, hear one another. Yeah. Well, I think for, for me, part of that mutual respect was understanding that, um, where, like my cousin, for example, where he was coming from, he wasn't coming from a place of hatred or anger. Even that's right. He was actually, you know, in his place and where he was speaking from was a good place. Yeah, just, no, I, I found that also. And yeah, and I think that's true with a lot of people on different sides of the spectrum. And mm-hmm. It's obviously not true of everyone. No, nope. <laughs> <laughs> but if someone genuinely believes something in their heart, that's not like they're. Most people aren't like trying to cause harm in the world. Most people are trying to do what they think is right. That's right. why they're doing it because they think it's right. That's right. So That's at least their motivation. Sometimes I think people don't think through all the consequences of their actions. And right. and so, you know, that's also why some people are asking for Brexit because they're saying, "Well, you didn't think it all through." And how, right. you know, the you know, I'm I don't feel like I'm participating in this you know, global economic boom, hmm. right? I don't feel even see a way that I could ever participate in it. Yeah. Well, it's it's part. It goes back to our comparing ourselves to others because when we look at the TV or the movies, it's always like fabulously wealthy people, <laughs> and then we think, I don't have that. Something's wrong. Well, maybe right. not having that's okay. <laughs> but like, I think sometimes, it, like for Nepal, for example, if you're a little villager and you don't even have a, a paved road to your village. Gotcha. And yet you can get the internet or a TV signal and you see these, this, you know, cars and houses and, mm. and then you look around what you have and it's just, it's changing people's minds all over the world. It's this global reach of, That's right. of well, media. I, and, the first time I went to Nepal to see Tugorjan, the uh, guy who drove me from the airport, the taxi driver, mm. absolutely couldn't get his head around the fact that my car wasn't bigger than his. like bigger is better well he just only saw America in the movies right Uh, right. and so you know I drove a small Japanese car and he was driving a small Japanese (laughs) car (laughs) and and he thought I was just you know totally full of it (laughs) (laughs) that's something I've thought about and I don't want to romanticize the past but you know if you were a farmer in the past and you could just be content and now it's kind of very difficult to be content because you see so much of what you don't have yeah I think there are other problems and you know at the end of the day uh, the the basic human condition that Tugor, that sorry Buddha was pointing out mm. hasn't really changed but mm. some of the ways that it comes about right. has greatly changed and um, 
I do think that, uh, you know, social media, what you, you see with a lot of young people, um, and probably not just young people, but I've been hanging out with uh, lately a bunch of people who are in their 20s. And what, you know, everybody's putting on social media the perfect version of their life, oh, yeah. not yeah. the other stuff, right? right? And so I went to this fabulous <laughs> place, I ate at this restaurant, I went on this vacation. Yeah. And so, you know, then it's really hard not to start saying, so what's wrong with my life? You know, why am I not going on the fabulous vacation? Yeah. I just I just did a, a meditation retreat and I posted a photo at the end of me ne- in, next to this beautiful mountain landscape mm. and put it on Facebook. And then I, I thought about what you're talking about. I'm like, because I'm just, I don't, I really don't want other people to see that. And because it was hard, you know, doing a meditation retreat is actually quite hard. But then you Can put be. the smiley picture and like <laughs> meditation and happiness and <laughs> the part cool. of the, Paradox is the happiness kind of comes from being with the difficulty, like not avoiding, not trying to run away. You know, the more we can give space to our demons, to our, the sticky, mm. icky, gross part of us, the traumatized, whatever, the problem is we're always fighting it. Mm. As soon as you just give it a little space to be, now you need some skills to be able to do it. There's a reason that we, you know, I, I used to suffer from intense insecurity mm. and I'd cover it up by what people thought, most people thought was, you know, really self-confidence, right? But it was just covering something up. And when I finally learned, I actually even was married to, I thought that was how I, how I was successful in my career was the insecurity pushed me to do greater and greater things. But actually all it did was push me to be more and more of a lunatic. Mm. And when I finally could just be with it and even admit it to other people's you, you know say yeah sometimes i'm insecure <laughs> i'm sorry i did that i was feeling really you know i wasn't really confident in that moment sometimes people are you not confident <laughs> but the funny thing is when i learned that how it was safe to just really feel it mm. not get into it not the story but like i was saying earlier just even the energy mm. of it where it is in my body right how it feels it began to dissipate, mm. but you do need um, you do need some support or some training. I, maybe I mean maybe not everybody, but it can be just very simple. I think some of the things we did this weekend, which we did in just two days, mm. will, would uh, dramatically help anyone. Uh, you know, to plug my own workshops and stuff. <laughs> but but um, but um, just you know, just allowing yourself to feel how you feel without commenting on it, without trying to push it away or judge yourself or compare yourself or fix it. Mm. But, you know, you need to be in a good place also to do that. Right. Yeah, it is a skill that we can develop. That's That's right. Yeah. And then you're talking about the interconnected happiness. That's one of the beautiful parts of the book, how connected everything is and how... Like the, I think you used the example of buying a bottle of wine. Like we <laughs> think right. we think we're making a free choice out of our free will, but we're actually just all these things have influenced us. And Absolutely, that's, just, that's amazing. The Sam Harris talks a lot about our lack of free will, and I really appreciate that because the more I examine any one decision I make, all the factors, all the causes, all the conditions, all the reasons why I'm making that choice mm. didn't come from me. Mm. They came from all kinds of things. That's right. Yeah. You know, there's another thing right with that bottle of wine that I love. It's called the Cookie Monster Experiment. Where um, they had these, uh, the, the, this happened at a university. They 
ask students in, in groups of three to talk about some really boring new bureaucratic proposals for, I don't know, some rules at the university to get, allegedly, to get the students' feedback. And so the students would come in, three, mm-hmm. and they'd randomly select one to be the leader, you know, collate the information and keep the conversation going and on topic, etc. And about half an hour into the conversation, they would bring a plate of cookies. Now, there were four cookies and three people. (laughs) And so everyone takes a cookie. And then there's one cookie left. And 73% of the time, the randomly chosen leader got the fourth cookie. That's so interesting. (laughs) So it just shows, you know, we think there's like some kind of... That all these choices are ours, but it's so much our conditioning, our way of, uh, you know, our way of we were thought to be, you know, we think we should be, what tribe we want to associate with. I mean, the bottle of wine, I mean, you know, so many different things had to happen. You had to even have a planet that supported life. You had (laughs) to have, you know, a certain kind of uh, carbon-based life Mm. forms. Then there was, you know, agriculture, the fact that you could grow your own stuff. And then Mm. somebody had to figure out, um, that fermented beverages were safer to drink a lot of the time than water, mm. and et cetera, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. And then you had to have roads to bring it, and the, all these different yeah. kinds of machines had to happen. And and so actually, by the time you get to the bottle of wine and choosing one, it's the sort of the least interesting part of the whole equation, mm. right? Yeah, and, it's amazing. I mean, one thing that I thought about when I heard that is like even the culture you're in. Because yeah. if you're in a Muslim culture, they don't yeah, drink alcohol. That's right. And so. There's you no wine. It, there's no wine. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there you go. So, and and you know, also um, the idea of making especially delicious wine and marketing mm. it in that way, and and um, you know, uh, um, all these different things. You know, m- many people uh, decide which wine to buy by looking at what the Robert Parker score is, for yeah. example. Not that that's necessarily a bad way, but but you're, you've actually, you think you're choosing, but you're, you know, really? what did Robert Parker say, you know? And we want to put a number on everything, too. That's, that's kind of a weird... That's a, I was drinking a 92-pointer <laughs> last night. It was really good. <laughs> yeah. And then I, the other thing I was thinking about is with this interconnectedness is the Buddhist idea of equality. Mm, and I think right. that has been one of the most powerful things I've spent some time trying to think about and understand, and it, it totally can cut through the comparing self to others that we're talking about because this idea that any experience, if we can really touch in the moment, there's a sense of equality that, um, I don't know, it's hard to put into words or talk about, but just starting to open up to when you're really present, then you're just almost through dropping the comparison, you can start to touch into that equalness. There's not something better to get to. Everybody really does want to at least avoid horribleness and, you know, have some kind of peace or contentment. Now, you know, people always say to me, yeah, but that axe murderer, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, of course, it mm. seems on the outside like it's just pure evil. But still, from that person's point of view, of course, they're doing everything wrong. Mm. It's not going to bring them any kind of relief. But still, the motivation is this idea that there's some kind of pleasure or some kind of release or something mm. that that mitigates the horribleness of life through this you know horrible act. Mm. And so, everybody, it's not to excuse or, or, but it's to see that really everybody sort of wants the same thing, even if their idea of how to do it is very, very, very different. And we begin to 
when you begin to see things from that perspective, then you get a step closer to being like Tugurjan and being really able to see, respond to the needs mm. of others. Respond to your own needs, too. Mm. Um, with, with comparison, the biggest thing is just simple gratitude. Mm. Just finding, you know, grateful. it's like every day, just find one thing to feel, feel gra- grateful for. So, uh, the example I often give is, I have this one hoodie I love. It's a ratty old thing, but I just like it. And, you know, <laughs> when I see it, I feel happy and I'm happy. You know, I feel <laughs> grateful that I could, could have found this ratty old, my wife wants me to get rid of it, of course. But, um, you know, it's, it, but, mm. but it's, that starts to change. It reprograms our habit. Mm-hmm. Our habitual way of relating by just finding again and again and again things to be grateful for, even in the midst of all the chaos and, and lousy things that sometimes happen. Mm. So, um, but with the other thing, we call it, by the way, relax comparing, not eradicate or <laughs> just relax. A little comparison's fine. And the same thing is judging. Judging is what we do to everybody else. Right. Right? And, and, you know, again, science says within a few milliseconds, we've made these um, judgments about people. And even when they're wrong, we find it's almost impossible to change those judgments. Mm. And how can you start to work with that? It's by seeing the equality, by see- feeling, uncovering your own capacity for warm-heartedness, for caring, for mm. kindness. And then... You know, um, we're able to to overcome this this sort of habit of making these very solid, quick, almost unconscious, no, totally unconscious judgments about mm. one another. You know, um, but I do want to say one thing because uh, Rinpoche and I last year did a book tour and we went, it was a really fun group in Silicon Valley, these uh, women entrepreneurs and executives, I don't mm. know, they actually let two guys come in and talk to <laughs> mansplain for an hour. And, um, and one of them said, stood up and said, I, you know, I just listened to your book on Audible and, um, you know, we're where we are because of our ability to have insight and have an intuition. And you're saying that that's, you know, something we have to overcome. And, huh. and so, actually, it's a good question. So, the difference between intuition and insight and um, and judging is this, and it's actually something I saw. The best technologists I met in Silicon Valley, the best business people I met in Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. had this one trait in common: when new data came in, they could instantly change their mind. Mm. Their opinion could shift. Mm. And so, just imagine you want to know whether it's judgment or insight. Someone tells you and shows you how you're wrong. If it's judgment, you're going to fight it. If it's mm. insight, you're like, okay, that's cool. Wow, I didn't think of it that way, <laughs> right? <laughs> and that's how you know. And, and, and so, of course, we have intuition, and sometimes it's quite right. But, but it's always lighter. Mm. It's always lighter. Mm. Of course, sometimes we have intuition and we turn it into judgment. Because right. that's our habit. Huh. Uh, that's a good, uh, that's a really good point. Yeah. I think Thank we you. can, yeah, learn to trust our intuition, but question our judgments and our... And and it's it's okay to question your intuition, but you you'll feel more comfortable with it when you see it's not so tight. Mm. Anytime it's tight, 
that's mm. a that's like a warning sign. Right. Danger, danger. <laughs> you know, like you're trying to hold on to this is the way things are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any information yeah. I get, I'm yeah. Gonna, and and it's yeah. it's it's remarkable. Just look on Facebook. Anytime someone's presented with new facts that contradicts their <laughs> their point of view, they they almost every time double down. They never go, oh, thank you, that's so good, you pointed that out to right. me. They like seem to get more stubborn about right. their opinion. And it's everybody, you, me, everybody has this as a challenge. Yeah, yeah, that is a big challenge. And maybe social media is somehow amplifying the. Because you're like making this public pronouncement. It's yeah, not a private that's conversation. Right. That's it's right. harder that's to. That's a like. good point. I didn't think of that. You're right. But, so, what's the next? Do you want to go through your book a little bit more? Uh, <laughs> well, we, we've touched on quite a bit of it. Of course, what we haven't said is all that there's 28 exercises in the right. book. And so we go step by step really, gradually. Yeah, really more than a book. It's a kind of program that you can incorporate in your life. Mm. And in fact, I had a friend recently call me and said, oh, I love your book, but I'm really, for the, I've really only gone through the first two exercises. Is mm. that okay? And I'm so happy because we actually imagined that people would savor it, go through it slowly mm. and really own it and then go, go on. So, of course, some people will read the whole book, but then go back and enjoy. Mm. And it, it's a, it is possible even to jump around. I think I should say something about why we wrote it sure. and, and maybe how that happened. Um, I had been in a long-term retreat uh, and uh, really you know, disengaged from the world, obviously. Is this it, a three-year retreat? That's right. Yeah. And, um, it's the traditional Tibetan Buddhist three-year, right. three months, three weeks, is that right? That's correct. This keeps going? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> three days? <I> don't <laughs> something like that. Three hours, three <laughs> seconds. Anyway, uh, so that I did that. I'd been a, li- a lifelong dream to do a long wow. retreat, so really yeah. since I was uh, in my late teens or Where did you 20s. do the retreat? In a monastery in France. Okay. And then um, uh, when I came out, they were like, wow, meditation suddenly, you know, this was like 2009 or, or almost 2010. Uh, they, they asked me if I would stay. I had been thinking I would just go back to my old life, but they, mm-hmm. they um, gave me an interesting challenge, which was meditation is start, this thing called mindfulness-based stress reduction was yeah. starting to become very popular. Um, and could I uh, help them create a Buddhist meditation course Online, offline, you know, given in hmm. centers, but also online and um, and retreats and so forth. And because of my technological experience, but also my experience in delivering products, you know, I haven't been an entrepreneur, blah blah blah. Hmm. You know, they, and um, I thought that's an interesting problem, and um, not really. Uh, you know, being a product, I wanted to beta test it. Hmm. And then also, I wanted to beta test it myself. I, my, a lot of my career was spent in user interface design, yeah. where I'd go and watch people using software uh, to, to figure out, you know, how to better give them tools that they could use. So you got to observe and look and see what the actual experience That's is like. Right. Yeah. So I went to New York City and started giving our early versions of our class. And I had a lot of young people in my class, uh, young urban professionals under 35, who had gone through the financial crisis mm. and really, uh, you know, had lost faith in a lot of, you know, it's the cynicism that's it's got even bigger today, you know, but faith in government institutions, mm. financial, uh, you know, old school business hierarchy, religious hierarchy, you know, mm. we're starting to hear about scandals and churches and all this stuff, blah, mm. blah, blah. So, they, you know, but 
they they also uh, wanted to learn meditation from an authentic source. They weren't looking to become Buddhists, although some of them, interestingly, eventually okay. did. Yeah. But they were interested in learning about the information. And I began to see how the way that Buddhism traditionally, and I don't mean traditionally in terms of in Tibet, I mean traditionally taught in a Western context mm. in Buddhist centers, how that wasn't totally meeting people where they were actually at. So I was yeah. thinking about this some. And then, you know, after a while, I'd been at the monastery for, I don't know, eight years in total. I did a little more retreat. and. Oh, wow. Um, but then I just I needed to sort of reclaim my own independence, and mm. you know, eight years was good, and it was time to move on. And I I went to Nepal uh, to attend some teachings with one of my teachers, and um, and also get some space and rethink my life. And uh, while I was there, my old friend Pacho Grimpache, I knew him first as a teenager, and then later uh, his uncle brought him to my house. Uh, when he was about 22, and we just hit it off instantly. Mm. We, I, we, I don't know if he knew me, but I knew who he was. I think he, when he was a teenager, would look at all us Westerners coming to, you know, with you know, incredible devotion for his parents, who were great teachers, and his uncle, a great teacher, but a little bit, you know, he was like, he was a teenager. It's <laughs> like, oh, God, right? So uh, he had no interest. But but now he was a young man and uh, had also changed and starting to really come into his own sort of authentic power or mm-hmm. understanding. And uh, we just hit it off. So uh, this friendship kind of got interrupted with the retreat. And we're both in Nepal. And uh, I, uh, I came down to see him. And we had a really nice night, the two of us. His wife and kids were someplace else. And my wife was had come with me, but our program was quite intense and she didn't want to mm. leave. So uh, we started talking. And I started telling because he was 32 maybe at the time. I thought that he would mm. real, this would be really good for him to share my experience. But oddly enough, he was like finishing my sentences. And he would say oh. something and I was kind of finishing his sentences. Even though... We had remarkably different backgrounds. Huh. You know, he was raised in a very traditional Buddhist culture by an incredible family of practitioners, recognized as a young child to be incarnation of a great teacher, mm. um, which I think in his teenage years he totally rebelled against and didn't buy into at all. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Because <laughs> you would think he was at the top of the pyramid. He would like being at the reincarnation. Well, yeah, you think if you read the book, you'll see that he, and when he was a teenager, he, he didn't like it. And, mm. um, and it was good. I mean, I think he did question a lot of the stuff, uh, the, the things he was being taught, and, and, and then began to own it himself because mm. he questioned it, because he didn't just say, oh, you know, Buddha said so, therefore, blah, blah, blah. Right. And, and, um, and so, despite our very different backgrounds, because then he began teaching in the West and he had a center in upstate New York, and so he, he, he was seeing modern life outside mm. of Nepal. I don't think it's east-west, but it is modern versus right. ancient, but in this case, it was in Western countries. Well, we could say developed versus yeah. less yeah, developed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, anyway, so this conversation ended up continuing on WeChat for a while, you know, it's oh, cool. like WhatsApp, so you can... <laughs> speak and then leave a message and because we're on other ends of the earth different time zones and then i went to california to um sell my house i still had a house i realized i was going to stay in france and um 
he uh, was there teaching and invited me to come stay visit him. And we continued our conversation and we decided by the end that we would write this book. Oh, beautiful. And why? Because we could see even ourselves in this crazy, fast-paced, modern life, always-on, wired world, that there needed to be something that met people where they're at. Mm. Not that, that you come and you come to where the teachings start. Mm. You know, you take something like this beautiful uh, teaching called Lojong, you know, the, this great tradition of Mahayana Buddhism where you, you really, the path is to, to really deeply care about the welfare of others. Mm. Right. But where it starts is put everybody before yourself. How the hell do you do that? Mm. You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, I mean, even, you know, uh, young llamas will, will, you know, it's not like on day one you instantly go, oh, well, okay, everybody comes before me. That's something yeah. you spend a lifetime cultivating that attitude and, yeah. and bringing it forth. That's a, that's a great example because if you hear put everyone before yourself and you have a lot of self-negativity that's right and then you're just contributing to your that's own right. kind of self-negativity and that can, yeah. unless you are a healthy human being meaning a healthy sense of self right. I mean you know Buddhism no self no self but there's a healthy sense of self that has to come first no one became spiritually realized by being by through the path of neurosis and misery <laughs> right? You have to build it on a foundation. doesn't mean they didn't have challenges. I mean, mm. you know, growing spiritually is very challenging. But you have to have a base level of contentment, some way you can find. It doesn't mean you never get upset. You never, I mean, radically happy isn't about being blissed out all the time. Right. Of course things go bad, but it's about finding that basic okayness mm. in the midst of anything that life can throw at you. Yeah. I like you know, that. Yeah. Well, one actually, Thanks. one counterexample of, of someone going down the path of neurosis so far was Eckhart Tolle. Have you heard of yeah. his life story? And he was A suicidal and yeah. about to kill himself. And then he had this insight, realization of no self. There was no self there. Like, who was he going to kill? Who was going to kill who? And and then he had this breakthrough. And yeah. but then after the breakthrough, you don't keep, he didn't keep having the negativity because he was free of it. I guess. Yeah, and he was very fortunate. So for most of us, yeah. we'll have the insight. Sometimes the, the, the image that's given is like a, a scroll of paper. You know how when you... Mm. So then you flatten it out with your two hands, and for a moment it's flat, but you take your hands off and the scroll forms Roll, again. Rolls right back up. That's right. And so for most of us, we'll get a taste of this kind of okayness. But then, you know, life takes over and, and the scroll goes. But that's okay. It's... One thing's a habit, the way we currently relate to ourselves and the world around us, and we can unlearn that habit. We can eventually flatten, you know, you, t you keep opening mm. that scroll, eventually it'll stay flat all by itself. Mm. Nice. And so that's, um, that's you know, it's, it's yeah. like exercise, <laughs> mental exercise. Well, one thing you, you mentioned was around this, people coming to learn meditation and they want to be Buddhist. And I totally relate and understand to that because Buddhism can just be another ism. That's right. Another thing you belong to. How do you speak to that or understand that? Because, you know, it, it can just be another religion or it can be another philosophy or ideology even. Well, with Radically Happy, we did want to revisit a lot of that and in particular language, you know, that um, to, to speak about certain things that we learned from our teachers forget about whether it's buddhism or not stuff we learned from our teachers that we could share with people but respecting where they 
where they're most likely at in modern life. Hmm. And not make it be about being a Buddhist or not a Buddhist. Right. I mean, honestly, if you do this in many ways, I guess maybe, I guess you could be called a Buddhist, although there's some other things about being Buddhist that aren't in this book, but that's not so important. What's important is that we find this basic okayness that's always available hmm. that we just have to get more and more used to. You know, the, the word meditation in Tibetan is gom. Hmm. It doesn't mean meditating. It means getting used to, becoming familiar hmm. with. So, what we're, it's a process of becoming more and more familiar with actually who we really are, hmm. you know, free from all our uh, looping thoughts and emotions. <laughs> yeah. I guess I, I hope that, and I think we are as a culture evolving towards a new kind of understanding of some of these things and even spirituality that's not dividing us and that yeah. doesn't really matter. Like you said, what church or sect you belong to, there's certain basic ways our mind work that we can start to learn and appreciate. And I think yeah. that, yeah, I think that's a good way to look at it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this just, you know, it's just, we just kept thinking about friends, family, ourselves, all these people we knew who were struggling and what could we give them? That would make a difference. And so that, that was the question we were constantly asking. It was the guiding principle for w why we put one thing in the book and not another. Hmm. And, um, and, and uh, you know, I just want to say one other thing because <laughs> I worked in software my whole life and you never ship what you imagine at the beginning. There's all uh, kinds of reasons. The biggest one is usually you're just too ambitious. It's much harder than you thought it was going to be. <laughs> but it's also things like your competitor does something unexpected and you got to get something out the door. And Anyway, so this book, it's like almost from the beginning we imagine something. And this book is even a little better than that. Mm. I don't want to say it's good or bad. That's for other people to say. But I can at least say at least one time in my life, I shipped something that was what I really imagined mm. it could be at the very beginning. We worked with a very talented graphic artist mm. because we felt that, you know, people don't just learn by, by reading and thinking, and, but they, they learn by being in an environment. And that's a little bit hard to do with a book, but if... We by working with an artist so that every page we think it looks beautiful, mm. every page is is set in a particular way, and that that creates an environment, and and you know we didn't do all these self helpy people sitting in chairs with thought bubbles. It's abstract graphics, mm. and um, and you, I, you paid I, attention to that the aesthetic appeal and quality, yeah. and that's important. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for saying that. I you know. Um, you know, you always worry in, in 10 years, will it look dated or whatever? But I think huh. what's, what Julian's skill was, was to, because he is a professional graphic artist, was to eschew anything that was au courant hmm. and just try to, in, through abstract art, capture the spirit of the book. Hmm. So I think it will probably stand up. Yeah. I like it. And I love how you give the practical exercises and... Um there's not a sense of ownership. It's like you're just giving these, do this practice, and here's this thing that I try to understand, and here's this practice to do. It's not like you're joining this organization where you go through all these levels and you have to get to the next practice yeah, after 100 right. years of... That's right. I mean, it's just kind of a refreshing... I think that's really the approach that's going to meet people where they're at. Well, thanks. I'm glad you feel that way. I, I hope that's what it does. And, you know, this isn't something that we made up. It's things that we learned from our teachers... And that we tried ourselves. Mm. And, and so, you know, we, we sometimes joke that 90% of the book is, 
our teachers and 10% is our crap stories about our life. <laughs> <laughs> that makes it relatable, yeah. I guess. Yeah, well, that's what they say. Well, I'm curious, a question I have that comes up for me is like, when you were first getting into meditation or oh. hearing about Tibetan Buddhism, like I, for me, there were some really weird things. And when I was first learning about it, I loved uh, Buddhist philosophy and teachings and the like Zen, I was really into Zen. Mm. And I was very skeptical of some of the stuff I saw in Tibetan traditions with the kind of the big deal that people would make about the guru, like worshiping this person and the prostrations and this and that and all the, I didn't understand all the symbolism at that Mm -hmm. time. So did you go through a a period like that or? Well, I remember when I went on my first uh, meditation retreat with a Tibetan teacher, they were prostrating and I didn't understand that. I didn't like it and I didn't do it. But what was great about that group Mm -hmm. is they, nobody vibed me. They didn't care. No, because it's something that should come naturally. It Mm -hmm. should be an expression of the gratitude that you feel. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are other ways you could do it in a little bit. I suppose it's coming from um, Asian culture, traditional Asian culture. But then, you know, a little bit also, it's all just habit. So why not try it out? Yeah, and eventually <laughs> I tried it out. But I think, I think the thing is that where I see people get into trouble is when they start projecting all this, uh, you know, the guru's so perfect, da 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 I mean, maybe that's true, but it's not really you're experiencing the guru is perfect. You're experiencing your mm. idea of the guru. That's a good distinction. And then they do something that doesn't fit that idea, and the whole house of cards falls apart. First of all, from Buddhist point of view, we're in samsara. What is samsara? It's our neurotic, distorted way of relating to ourselves in the world around. It's based on our traumas. From Buddhist life, Buddhist perspective, it's something we've been working on from lifetimes. But you can just say simply, what you, what happened in this life mm. that causes you, when you get new information, to reject it. You yeah. know, <laughs> you know that's that's coming from that. And so, in samsara, in this neurotic, distorted way of perceiving, nothing's going to appear perfect. Mm. So, you can't have the expectation, although, you know, I, you know, I, I was fortunate that I met Tugorjan when he was this uh, somewhat feeble old man. So, you know, he, he, and I only saw him like a few weeks a year, and then mm. I'd go home and but, you know, maybe if I'd been around him all the time, I'd notice, you know, he likes this food and doesn't like that food or right. maybe scolds someone sometimes. <laughs> I have no idea. But, you know, that you, you, you can't have this expectation that we hear the guru's infallible, but what that means is pointing out our nature is infallible. Mm. We are all ultimately infallible. What does infallible mean? It means that there's a part of us that can't be harmed, no matter what arises in our minds. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, this sounds quite provocative and, and unbelievable because we've all experienced you know, great mental anguish. But just think of it this way. This will give all of us, uh, our listeners, a taste of what I mean by infallible, is when you're sleepy, do you know it? Hmm. Yeah. Okay, when you're awake, do you know it? Yeah. When you're sick, do you know it? Yeah, definitely. That quality of knowing is exactly the same in mm. every case. Of course, sickness is different than well. Sleep is different than awake. Mm. But the knowing of you can be really mentally dull, but the knowing that you're dull mm. is the same as knowing you're not dull. Interesting. It's never touched by what you know. 
the knowing quality of mind in that sense is infallible. Mm. And so a skilled teacher shows you that in a very, very profound, unmistakable way. Mm. And so in, so naturally you'll feel gratitude. Naturally you'll feel some love. You'd be kind of weird if you didn't. <laughs> but at the same time, they're not giving you something that you don't have. They can't make you progress spiritually. The, mm. Ultimately, Buddhism or any kind of great spiritual practice should be about self-empowerment. Not self in the ego sense of self, but mm. self in the mere sense of self, the healthy sense of self. Mm. Right. So, that in that way, we're... We are being shown a way to take responsibility for our own way of perceiving, to purify our own way of perceiving, to see that it's possible to be pretty free of neurosis, mm. pretty free of always falling back into habits, yeah, and living in the light of a real deep, profound authenticity. Mm. That's beautiful, and it's a natural, it can be a natural process. It's not some artificially big thing we have to make a huge deal about even that's right because if buddha had the power to 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 give us that he would have mm. all he could do <laughs> all buddha could do is show us how we can take that into our own lives right yeah that's a great point too well, i think um i mean there i'm just reflecting there have been these some scandals obviously mm. in all kinds of mm. communities and the buddhist community is no exception mm. so there is there is a reason for caution and even some disillusionment for some people. But I think what you're speaking to is like, if you touch something authentic and real, then you know it yourself and it doesn't matter what somebody else did. Like if somebody else was a fraud, then that's, that's what they were. But it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean everything that they, about the tradition or that they said was wrong. Like there's, you know, uh, yeah. I'm not sure I mean, how to talk about a, it. I'm just trying to raise the no, question. No, I understand. I think it's a very complex issue, and that's probably a whole podcast in itself. Yeah, we could do yeah. it another time. <laughs> but I do think that that I agree with what you said. At the end of the day, and, and I just want to say, you cannot expect. First of all, there's no teacher. There's no you. There's no me. There's just my idea of you. Hmm. In my mind, it's not saying that you. there's nothing outside my mind, but it's saying I'm only ever experiencing my mind. Hmm. What do I mean by that? So, uh, in the spring, I had uh, I came back from a hike, and I live in this place where there's mountains on one side and sea on the other. I just want to brag for a moment. <laughs> and um, I, went, I went up into the mountains for a hike, and when I came back, I went to my computer because I wanted to write some emails, and I could, couldn't see the email. I couldn't read it. And I realized I had a big blind spot. The doctor later said I was probably dehydrated. I don't know. Uh, but I, oh, I you literally couldn't see. Yeah, I, I freaked out, lay down for an hour or two, and then <laughs> suddenly I could okay. see again. I could see, but this is what's interesting. My brain or my mind stitched together reality so it made sense. I could walk through the door. I could, I, I, if I hadn't tried to huh. read, I would never have noticed. Oh, well. So this is what I mean. We're not really, you're not, ex I wasn't experiencing reality. I was experiencing my brain's construction of right, reality. Right. We're, we're, we're mistaking in a way you could say our user interface for what's real. Mm. So, so like the, the, the example might be, you know, on your desktop, your, when I was writing my book, I had an icon on my desktop that was, the, was radically happy. Mm. 
Hmm. Of course, it's not really radically happy. Really, what's going on is there's a bunch of sh- circuits in my computer, electricity going. Hmm. There's ones and zero, virtual ones and zeros, <laughs> not real ones and zeros. And that's what it really is, right? It's all this huh. kind of physics. And But I know that if I put that icon in the trash and hit... <laughs> so, you know, I can really screw up, right, right. if I do that. So, so it's it's real but not true you have to take your user interface seriously but it's not the complete explanation so to bring it back to you know uh how we relate to each other possible scandals all this stuff is you can't expect as long as you're you're dealing with a mind your own mind that's heavily conditioned heavily always reacting to tra- past trauma to 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 the culture you're in the way you were raised you can't expect that anything's going to appear perfectly in that mm. situation it's just unreasonable so sometimes teachers will appear to do weird things sometimes friends will appear to do weird things even though their motivation might be quite right now of course there's a line i'm not trying to excuse anyone for anything mm. but i just i just think that we have to this is why it's important to be mature about the whole thing there's a great slogan in the lojong teachings that mm. i talked about earlier drive all blame into one it doesn't mean that you should be self-flagellating all the time. It means take responsibility for your own habits of perception. Mm. Yeah. And this message is wonderful. It means we can do something about mm. the situation we find we're in. We are already self-empowered. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I guess part of what I'm thinking about is... Um, I haven't been in a situation where I've had someone I really looked up to deeply and mm. been really disappointed by their mm. behavior mm. that they were doing in secret or something. I haven't personally experienced mm. that, but I do have a sense that like I've gotten certain teachings, I've done certain meditations and you really feel it in yourself, the benefit. And then it kind of doesn't matter. Like I know that this is true. And then I can also like what you're saying, you can still make distinctions like this is good or this is right or this mm. is wrong. It doesn't mean that that's not valid. Mm. But there's this more lightness to it or something. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, it's that's why I love this example of it's a user the user <laughs> the interface. The user interface. Yeah, it's a good one. Because our mind our mind is what we are experiencing is a creation of our mind. I mean, even modern neuroscience and psychology is saying the exact exactly. same thing. Exactly. So Exactly. We're not experiencing the direct whatever that would be, we're not experiencing it. No, I mean, it's just obvious. We don't hear sounds our pets hear. We don't see the right. full spectrum of light. So already right. we're not experiencing reality, right? <laughs> I mean, we're experiencing some kind of it, some version of it. Mm. And, and you know, to go further, you know, we don't, you know, we, we're biologically adapted, you could say, to to um, survive and reproduce. So we don't notice some things that move very slowly, like erosion, mm. Right. right, you don't notice that the mountain is slowly changing, mm. right? Because that's not really valuable information for the survival <laughs> of your your species. You know, you also don't notice certain things that move really, really quickly. You don't notice electrons. You, you know, all these different things are, <laughs> yeah. are um, so. It, we, we, what we notice is our user interface. So mm. you can say, you know, sometimes it's good to just say not completely real, but you should take it seriously, mm-hmm. like a respect. That's right. Yeah. Beautiful. I think, I guess while I have you, is there anything, I'm just curious about your experience with Silicon Valley and it sounds like when you did this retreat, like that experience was part of why some people were asking you to help create this book. True. Um, 
I'm not even sure how to ask about it, but is there anything you want to share about that? You've been in the business world, you've yeah. and you've had success. Yeah. Is it kind of a dog eat dog world? Is it very competitive? Is it I I don't really know what Silicon Valley is exactly like anymore because mm. I haven't been there for a while. I can say that when I got involved in computing, it was a bunch of hippie programmers who just loved to do it, and nobody thought a lot about money. Mm. This is the old days, like at the very beginning. Yeah, of- I mean, like I knew Jobs and Wozniak. I mean, oh. Jobs maybe a little more than others, but even Steve Jobs, he wasn't the nicest guy in the world, but he really understood something about this meeting of human and computer mm. and it took him till the iPhone to really fully realize it. But it, it's not surprising to me that he did because... Because it was always, you know, it was obvious. I mean, he, you know, if you couldn't help him, he turned his back on you in mid-sentence. But, you know, I mean, he was a, a, a weird guy. But, you know. He was very driven. What do you think was yeah. driving him so much? Yeah. I, I think, think it was more than money for him. I think it was. Yeah, I think that's my point. I think yeah. he really saw this opportunity to create a machine person interface. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so the iPhone is a computer, yet nobody calls it a computer, mm, right? And, right? And the way of interacting it with it wasn't like w- the way we thought we would interact with computers. I mean, certainly not in the old days where you put cards, punch cards into a machine, <laughs> right? And read it and da-da-da. So, you know, I, I think, um, I mean, I'm not saying that nobody was motivated by money, but I think now maybe some of it is the expense of living in Silicon Valley is so insane mm. that, you know, it's impossible not to be thinking about money, you know, right. and, and to be driven by money. I think mm. that, I think it's silly to say that people aren't. It's like of course a they are. victim of its own success. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's distorted a lot of things. And I, you know, it's, I mean, sometimes I, my wife and I joke, we sort of miss California, but then the California we miss doesn't really exist. Oh, well, yeah. yeah. So, um, I don't really, you know, somebody just interviewed me about can Silicon Valley save us? And it was about mindfulness and apps and this and that. I don't really know. But I do, I do think that, um, I do think that the good side of Silicon Valley is this, this anything's possible. Mm. And it's very thrilling. But the bad side maybe is something about this quick fix. Right. And, you know, in particular with mindfulness or, or spiritual growth, that's an ugly process sometimes and takes some time. Yeah, it's not a quick fix, I think. I mean, that's where some people are looking to psychedelics and drugs and they mm. can have experiences and insights. But mm. in my observations over the years, it's not going to, you're not just going to instantly transform into some new being. That's right. Maybe there's a few stories of people that have done that, but. I'm sure there are. I mean, I'm, I I'm the tail end of the generation that came to Buddhism partly as a result of the psychedelic experience. And, um, you know, uh, a lot of, like, the famous Tibetan translators, not all, but they experimented or, you know. Pretty much all, anyone really interested in meditation, not anyone, but many of them that I've talked to have got initially interested through some psychedelic experience, myself included. Like, I I took LSD when I was 18 and it... Mm was uh, such a radically shift and change. And <laughs> That's right. I, I felt a freedom from this teenage angst that I'd been stewing in for what had yeah. seemed like forever. Yeah. And so, and then this, but just this undeniable realization that our mind is something way beyond what I had ever even considered or 
That's true. The the downside, of course, is that we get attached, right. and and it becomes another experience that you know, and no different than any other. And in fact, you know, my concern with people talking about psychedelics and uh, Buddhist, uh, you know, combining the two, mm. maybe it works. I, I guess I'd feel a little more confident if I if I met somebody who was like, you know, has realized his true origin and and mm. said I did it through through this combination. I feel there's a lot mm. of people in the middle of their path making this claim. Right. But, you know, I, I also right. don't judge it so much. I mean, maybe they're right. But my my big concern is is really that in Vajrayana Buddhism, you see how all experience can be used as food for spiritual growth. Mm. And so, therefore, you don't need to create anything. You mm. don't need to, in fact, Creating experiences is the basis of all our problems, right? Where we want, we want, <laughs> we want to create, you know, bliss, or we want to avoid right. terror, you know. And and so, you know, that that's the thing. I guess you know, I I, I do know that um, there are teachers who've taken psychedelics. Some Buddhist masters. One I knew, uh, he took mushrooms. And he's he's passed away long since, and and he. Um, and he uh, first in the first hour or two, he said, "Oh, this is great! It'll really help my students." And then after an hour, he <laughs> said, "Nope, they'll just get attached." Uh, the attachment, yeah. yeah. And, and I think that that there's you know he was a really great master. And there's another teacher I know who's really amazing, and he took a massive dose of LSD, made no difference. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because, that story. That's a good one. Yeah. 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 I think uh, Ram Das talks about that, right? Yeah. Uh, oh, that's another one. Is that there's a, different a, there's one? a Tibetan teacher. Oh, it's a Tibetan. Yeah, yeah, oh, okay. yeah. yeah Ram Das had it. I forgot about that. That's right. Yeah. So there's two data points. <laughs> well, I guess my I just appreciate an open, honest conversation about it, since yeah. there are so many people that yeah. are trying different things, and it's worth talking about. And but um, I just I just think that I guess that when I think about Silicon Valley and the mindfulness movement. Mm. And I'm all for it. And I actually work for a nonprofit that's yeah. bringing mindfulness to um, hospitals and to some like low income areas and different uh, homeless shelters and things like that. And it's great. But I, I just wonder about um, so many people are trying to integrate, which I think is great, your, your normal everyday life mm. and your spiritual path. Mm. And then when I hear about someone like you doing this three year retreat, that's mm. kind of the other end of the spectrum. Like yeah. you're taking a long period of time where yeah. you're just going to focus on this meditation practice. And there's, I have a respect and value to that that I feel like maybe people in the modern mindfulness movement don't see because they are seeing like, well, we can just practice for 30 minutes a day and we'll get the same benefit as a... Maybe they're not thinking of it in I, that I way. I think but there is some benefit. I think that, that I think there's a great deal of benefit. The science is undeniable. And I, I think if the whole world did mindfulness-based stress reduction, just to mention one way of doing mindfulness, I think the world would be a better place. Yeah, I, I do. I think the world would be a better place. My, my point is that... People aren't appreciating that they're. It's like Olympic athletes. Yeah, like someone who trains a lot is going to have a different thing than somebody who does a little bit. It's because we're mistaking the fringe benefits of meditation for meditation by thinking, you know, focusing on calm or focusing on lowering your blood pressure or this kind of Mm -hmm. thing. You're focusing on the fringe benefits. Mm. But really, meditation ultimately is about ending this constant dividing of experience into me and you, this and that. Right. It's, it, it, it's, I mean, if you think about this, what we were talking about, how we're only ever experiencing our mind, right? Then, but we don't experience it as that integrated 
thing. Mm-hmm. We still think it's me and there's this, you know, reality out there. And yeah. instead, so we're, we're again mistaking the user interface, which is what? It's just a manifestation of our own natural awareness, but we're dividing yeah. it. We're dividing it, yeah. And no, so, yeah. so um, um, I think that's the, you know, that's the kind of, unfortunate thing and so you see a lot of people who are claiming now they have devices uh that will help you meditate and right um and maybe maybe to some degree they will but first i think we still don't know what we should really be measuring right and as a ui guy i think the interfaces are way too crude still mm. i think i'm very excited about the potential of biofeedback mm-hmm. but i still think we have a long road to hoe yeah we're not exactly sure what it is we're measuring when we look at brain scans we don't really know people That's don't right. That's right. I think this isn't talked about enough because right. I hear people talk about mindfulness and do a TED talk or something, and it's like so neuroscience is so much in flux. Right. What we understand is changing so rapidly, and mm-hmm. we can't make these definitive statements. This is the part of the brain that's mindful, or this mm-hmm. is the part of the brain that's awareness. We don't yeah. have anything like that. That's We're not right. even anywhere near that. That's right. So, but I guess the, I mean another thought is just I appreciate what you said. It's like no one's leaving to do a three-year retreat so they lower their blood pressure. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you don't need to do a three-year retreat to lower your blood pressure. In fact, in the beginning, it might raise it a bit. (laughs) (laughs) You're sitting there all alone with your mind with no escape. Actually, in this way, Silicon Valley was fantastic prep because I just lived such a stressful life. And when Mm. all I had to do is sit there in a room alone with my own neurotic mind, it was such a relief. (laughs) Even though I'm saying it was hard, okay? It just wasn't as hard as having to please shareholders every 30, (laughs) 90 days. Well, it's, it's like the in the life story of the Buddha, he had the palace and all this stuff, and then he left it after he had that. I think there's something to that. Yeah, yeah, you had this stressful life, and then you could appreciate letting go for a while. Yeah. Let's, is there anything you want to share about that retreat? Did it was there a sense of increasing deepening over time, or did you get to a place that you could never have gotten to if you didn't do that? Oh yeah, of course. Sure. I mean, come yeah. on. I mean, you you spend three years doing one thing, like <laughs> play guitar all day long for three years. Mm. You'll be a lot different at the end of those three years mm. than at the start. So of course, it's not different than that. But um, I don't know. I think I became more normal, more natural person. Mm. A little less Eric focused, slightly less. Mm. That's an interesting effect that meditation should have, but it doesn't quite make sense in our culture normally. But that you become less self-absorbed, yeah. even though you're just by yourself. And I mean, and you could think about it like you're becoming more self-absorbed. But I think for me, I also had to go out into the world again because there was still some unfinished work. Mm. Interestingly, and it took a while for it to fully mature, and it's still maturing. I'm, uh, I mean, I still like to do long retreats. Mm. Um, I mean, I feel a responsibility now because I'm, I'm teaching radically happy that mm. you know I, I should um, manifest a little bit what's in the <laughs> book, and to do that, I have to keep doing it and give it time. But it's not uh, that you have to do what I do did to make the progress. Mm. You really can just with a little bit every day, again and again and again, taste something very, very different from what you're ordinarily used to. Mm, beautiful. Yeah. Well, I think that's undeniable. I think, yeah. I mean, one advantage of these apps, if they can remind you every hour or every half hour, <laughs> it's true. if you can take little breaks throughout yeah. the day, that can be really powerful. Yeah. And that's in the book about how to take mini breaks, both a mindfulness mini break, but also a warm hearted mini break. Mm. 
And then um, I guess the last thing I should say is that the book is built around this metaphor of a lion and a dog. Hmm. Uh, it's a very, very important old school metaphor that's commonly taught in the tradition of Buddhism, the sub-sub-tradition of Buddhism that I study. They call it Dzogchen. And um, um, we tell the story from Pacho Grimpache's point of view um, because I, I just thought it really worked. It was hard to get him to talk about himself. It's just oh, for, yeah. a, for a you know, Buddhist teacher, it's from a Asian culture, you know, telling life stories. And, <laughs> you know, anyway, but I thought, it, I thought it really worked well, and I really encouraged him, let's tell it. But, but I also received this from the same teacher, Nushul Ken Rinpoche, this great old master who is one of Pachuk Rinpoche's two main teachers. And uh, what, is, what is this metaphor? A, when you throw stones at a dog, what does a dog do? Chases the stone. Mm. When you throw stones at a lion, a lion doesn't give a damn about the stone. He turns to look, where's that stone coming from? <laughs> and if you're the stone thrower, you either run away or you get eaten. But either way, there's no more stones. Mm. So the whole book is we're all about how we're always chasing our thoughts and emotions. It's never the first rising of the thought or emotions, the problem. It's all the thoughts that right. come after it. Yeah. The, so true. Uh, yeah. It's not that also thinking is bad. For some things, thinking isn't... I couldn't write writ, written code without thinking. Right. Right? Or my wife uh, is an artist, and she needs intentional periods of mind wandering. That means she's decided mm. to just let her mind go and oh, think about thoughts. It's like creative. That's, that's part of the creative process. Yeah. But... If we're honest, that's not what's going on. Most, 99% of it is just habitual, right? right. Like show up at the you know, restaurant for lunch and our friend's not there yet and we just start daydreaming and, and evaluating and all about silly stuff. There's no point to it. Yeah, it's right? often unpleasant. Right? We're, not, we're not solving the world's problems or even <laughs> our problems. We're just you know, letting it flow. And this takes us from the present moment. So we, we're like a dog chasing stones. Hmm. And so here, through the process of Radically Happy, we gradually turn our mind more and more towards the stone thrower, the source of, of where the thoughts and emotions come from, our own natural aware quality. That knowing, remember I was saying, yeah. do you know you're, you're sick? Do you know you're awake? Do you know you're asleep? You begin, we, first we have to become present moment focused. We need to uncover our warm-heartedness. Why? Because when we, when we care for others, we, our slight tendency towards narcissism, towards being very me-focused, gets softer. Hmm. It weakens a little bit. And if you're in that moment of both being present moment focused and a little bit off yourself, you might notice something very, very different. You might experience yourself and the world around you a little bit differently. So we, in the final chapter, we talk about how to really begin to turn our minds towards recognizing the knower of experience rather mm. than what is known. Mm. And, and begin able, beginning to see it's infallible or un, that it's not cannot be harmed, isn't touched by what rises in it. Just like the sky, clouds, thunderstorms, mm. all these things can happen, but the sky is never harmed by it. In the same way, everything appears within the, oops, sorry, within the space of our own natural awareness. Mm. 
but that's never made better or worse by what appears in it. Hmm. So, you know, maybe when you're listening to this, it sounds, you know, amazing and maybe not totally true, but but that's why you have to go through a gradual process. And right. if, I think if you read the book, it becomes more and more obvious exactly what it, we're talking about. Yeah, and it's a, it's a real journey you can go on. And I mean, for me, I'm still on it. I'm still... But when I hear something like that, it's like, it's, it, it deepens. You know, you could hear the same thing many times, and it's always kind of fresh And mm. when you actually look and investigate what's mm. going on. and Yeah, that's beautiful. Well, thanks. Well, thanks so much for being on here. Oh, I had a blast. This is great. Yeah. Do you want to mention your website? Oh, yeah. We have a website, radicallyhappy.org. And I'm, uh, I'm, I'm uh, spending all fall in Europe teaching in places like Germany, the Netherlands, mm. Switzerland, Austria, and possibly Spain. Spain might be in the beginning of the year. And, um, but you can find out more about the book, about me and Rinpoche, and, uh, and my teaching schedule mm. at radicallyhappy.org. And um, if you want to learn more about Pachak Rinpoche in particular, you can go to samyeinstitute.org, which is, that sounds like a funny word, but you can find it from radicallyhappy.org. Mm -hmm. And also, um, I sometimes uh, write things there as well. And uh, uh, I hope uh, for those of you listening, I get to meet you, some of you in person one day. Mm, yeah. And uh, I had a really, really good time. I think uh, I, I really enjoyed listening to what you had to say as well. And Thank you. I hope uh, this endeavor of yours, this podcast, is very successful and is able to reach yeah. lots of people. It sounds like you're doing good things. Thank you. Appreciate that. If you found this podcast valuable, there are many ways that you can support it. You can blog about it, post about it on your social media accounts and share it with friends. You can visit our Patreon page, patreon.com backslash a state of mind. And you can leave us a review in your favorite podcast listening app. For episode notes and more information and links, please visit estateofmindplay.com. And to learn more about my work as a therapist, meditation teacher, and coach, visit julianocean.us. Thanks so much, and I will see you here next time. <laughs>